Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. Welcome back to the Dry Cleaner Cast and our first show of 2017. We will now be releasing a show monthly on the third Friday of every month. On today's show, we're joined by Dr. Vin Toten of the International Spy Museum in Washington, DC. We discuss the museum's history. We also discuss the museum's weekly podcast called SpyCast. And we speculate on what 2017 holds for the world of espionage. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Vince, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Happy to be here. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to focus on the world of intelligence? Well, my my story, I blame it on my parents. Um, they they did something that potentially could, at this point, get them in trouble. They let me stay up way past my bedtime when I was seven years old and let me watch a TV movie here in the United States that is still the most watched TV movie of all time. It's called The Day After. I know that movie. Yeah, and it's, it's a movie about the United States going to World War III. It's a small Manhattan, Kansas town that is the center of you know the nuclear apocalypse. And that really screwed me up in all the right ways. Um it made me very interested as a seven-year-old in nuclear weapons, which that, you know, I still thought about things like sports and, you know, playing, but for whatever reason, I just kind of never got off this topic of nuclear weapons. And then I read a book when I was 10 called The Making the Atomic Bomb by a guy named Richard Rhodes. Um, fantastic book if you haven't read it. It's still considered the Bible on the history of the Manhattan Project. And I didn't understand a lot of it because it's kind of physics-y and there's a lot going on there, but... I understood enough that it made me want to read it again when I was 14 and I had actually had some science background and it just kind of, kind of sucked me in to the point that it was always something I wanted to do, kind of study nuclear policy, nuclear weapons. And then when I got to grad school, actually, I realized that, um, I didn't have enough physics. Uh, I had, you know, a decent amount, but I really kind of needed a much, much higher level of physics than I did. And I was, I was a historian one way or the other. And at the same time, I started thinking, you know, it's really interesting how bad we are even today at figuring out when somebody is going to have some kind of nuclear development, right? We're always surprised when North Korea does some tests. We're always, there's always this huge debate about whether or not Iran is about to build a nuclear weapon. And I basically was right in grad school or, or you know, starting it when the Iraqi WMD conversation was taking place. And so, you know, the beginning of the 2000s, right after 9-11, and I was amazed at how good our intelligence agencies were and everything else, but the fact that they couldn't figure out whether or not their weapons of mass destruction. It seemed basic to me, but then I wanted to know why was this so hard. So that led me to the intelligence side of things. I already had a little bit of informal intelligence stuff on the side. Uh, I was in the U.S. Army in the 90s and, and deployed to Bosnia, and a, and a lot of what was happening there was using intelligence to search for people indicted for war crimes, for mass graves, for um, 
you know, the making sure there's no weapons caches lying around to kind of start the war back up. So I had a intelligence, informal intelligence background. Um, but it really was this kind of investigation of how are we so advanced technologically and, and how long we've been doing this, you know, um, the, the, the MIs, the, the British intelligence has been around for hundreds of years in one form or another, but yet we can't figure out something so simple as, are there nuclear weapons in Iran or Iraq or North Korea? And, it, and that, I wanted to know why. Uh, and that's really what got me into kind of really going knee deep in intelligence. My, my doctorate, my doctorate dissertation was on U.S. nuclear intelligence in the 40s and 50s, which is kind of the beginning of everything. It, it's one of the advantages, actually, as a historian, most time you can't go back to the beginning. There's always some kind of precursor to everything, right? You could always keep going backwards and backwards. But when you're talking about nuclear weapons, there is a true beginning. You know, there was no nuclear intelligence before the 1940s because no one was receiving of nuclear weapons before the 1940s. So it's a true chance as a historian to say, I'm going to go to the beginning and work my way up from there. Excellent. Excellent. And did you ever find a satisfactory answer to your question? What's funny is I, I started my dissertation thinking, so I wrote about the U.S. intelligence effort against the Germans in World War II and the U.S. intelligence effort against the Soviets in the early Cold War. And I started by asking the question, we were so good about figuring out what the Germans were up to, and the British were great at this also. Why were we so bad when it came to the Soviets? Why were we so surprised by the Soviet nuclear tests in 1949? And that's the question I started my research on. And actually, when I finished a couple of years later, I went back and I realized I had it reversed. I said, we were so bad trying to figure out what the Soviets were doing and the Indians and the Pakistanis and the French and the North Koreans and the Iranians and the South Africans, how the hell did we get it right against the Germans? And so it kind of reversed itself that the, the anomaly wasn't the Soviets. The anomaly wasn't us not being able to accurately figure out what the Soviets were up to. The anomaly was our ability to figure out what the Germans were up to. And that kind of allowed me to say, all right, the number one key thing to understand about this is that it's really, really hard to do. And so I had a lot more sympathy for those that are struggling with figuring out what Iran is up to or what North Korea is doing, because I see how hard it is. There's a lot more going on here, and we can that's another half an hour worth of, or more worth of conversation. But I really I got surprised. It's rare that somebody going into a dissertation gets surprised at the end of it. And it's kind of a nice little treat to say, oh, well, that's, I hadn't thought that way. Mm. Just one last thing on nuclear, because it's just very interesting. Yeah. I mean, do you, what do you think about like the threat from North Korea these days? Because they seem to be making a lot of uh, kind of noises, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think until North Korea has a an adequate delivery system, there's really no threat. I, I, that's that's something that people tend to don't understand quite as well as they should. Is I don't care how effective your nuclear program is, if you can't deliver a warhead, then you don't really have a nuclear program. Um, that was, I mean, if you look at the Cold War, we weren't necessarily as tightly focused on nuclear weapons development in the Soviet Union. It was more about delivery systems, right? It's about, they've got MRBMs in Cuba, or they're developing cruise missiles, or they're developing MIRVs, multiple independently, independently targeted re entry vehicles. It's about the delivery systems. It's about new bombers. It's about the ability to get under radar. It's, again, that is the key here. And until North Korea develops an adequate delivery system, that's when I start worrying. And so when they start doing rocket tests, when they start, you know, long-range missiles, 
that you can put a warhead on, then I'll start saying, oh, they're a potential threat. But until they can launch 30, 40, 50 of those at us, then we don't need to worry because we do have anti-ballistic missile systems that can knock down a couple of missiles, usually on the way up in the launch phase. Um, the ABM systems aren't going to work against a coordinated attack from like Russia or China where there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and they have decoys and it's very coordinated that way. But a missile here, a missile there, uh, an inadvertent launch, they do have the capability of doing something about that. So it's not yet time to start freaking out about North Korea, but there's a lot of people paying attention to it. Mm. So this could be a, a highlight for the future then. Yeah, I mean, it, it really it really depends on how much influence China maintains over North Korea also. Um, China doesn't want to see a nuclear war any more than anybody else does because it would really mess up their economy. Uh, because everyone would blame them for not reigning in North Korea. They have the worst friend in the world. Um, the kind, you, know, the, you know, the friend you bring to a party and then he starts punching people and you get blamed for it. Um, that's, that's really, that, yeah, that's China is that position because mm. everyone knows that the North Korea's only friend are the Chinese. So people will start blaming them for bad behavior uh, and then their economy will suffer. And that's their number one concern is maintaining their strong economy. Uh, so there is there is light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the ability of the Chinese to do something about this. And you actually start to see them in some of the recent UN conversations where the Chinese aren't siding with the North Koreans. They're actually siding with the global community against North Korea. And that's that's nice to see. Uh, hopefully that continues in the future. Yeah, yeah, let's hope. <laughs> um, so let's just chat a little bit about the International Spy Museum. Yeah. First of all, how long, how long have you been um, based at the Spy Museum? Uh, almost three years. So mm. it'll be three years this spring coming up. Excellent. And can you just tell us about the sort of the history of the Spy Museum and how it came about? Yeah, it's really kind of an interesting story. We've been around since 2002. Uh, so we opened a little bit after 9-11. But the museum itself was planned back in the 1990s. And um, we are, are founded... We're founded by a guy named Milton Maltz, who is a philanthropist now, but back in the day, during the, the Korean War, he spent a little less than a year at NSA, and he kind of got bit by the intelligence bug. He did signals intelligence work. He did radio work for NSA. Then when he got out, he started buying radio stations and television stations. And way before anybody else thought it was a good idea, he started buying FM radio stations. And at the time, everybody was AM, right? This was this is in the early 50s. Rock and roll hadn't really kicked off yet. AM radio was a thing of the future. Everybody thought he was crazy for buying FM radio stations. Well, by late 50s, early 60s, Elvis, the Beatles, the Stones, everybody else, all of a sudden, FM radio stations were ridiculously lucrative. Uh, and he sold the lot uh, for a lot of money. Uh, and then started opening up museums. Actually, his first one that he helped, he's from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland was uh, a big a part. Of, he, he brought it there. He had a lot to do with bringing that to Cleveland. Uh, and then he sought to open an intelligence museum. He wasn't, he, he's a very brilliant man, but he realized very quickly, and I think this is what makes him brilliant, that he didn't know enough about intelligence from his eight or nine months at NSA to open a museum himself. So he rounded up some very, very smart people. Uh, and that's who our current board is. Uh, our, our advisory board includes four former directors of the CIA, former director of the FBI, former director of NSA, former head of counterintelligence for the FBI, former head of counterintelligence for the KGB, 
someone from your neck of woods, former head of MI5, Stella Remington, the first woman to ever lead a major Western intelligence agency. Uh, and your, your listeners may or may not know that the Judy Dench version of M was based on Stella entirely. That's um, correct, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have people like David Kahn, who is the NSA historian wizard, um, and this in mothers, right? So this group got together and they said, all right, what, what needs to go inside a spy museum? And so they, their ideas are what shaped the current museum that we opened in 2002. Uh, we're currently in the process of, uh, building a new museum actually. So if your listeners end up in DC between now and the springtime of 2018, they will come to the current museum, but by late spring, early summer 2018, we will not be here anymore in our current site. We'll actually be on the other side of the National Mall because we're building a building from the ground up and we're kind of radically transforming the content inside the museum. Fantastic. And so the museum must be very popular, you know, if you're expanding. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we average between about 750,000 to 800,000 annual visitors. So we're, we're pretty popular. I mean, D.C. is full of really great museums. Uh, there's a ton of competition, obviously, with the Smithsonian's. Uh, so we're we're pretty proud of the fact that we're not a Smithsonian. We're not. We're a private, uh, nonprofit institution. You know, we don't get government funding. We don't. Uh, we're not beholden to any agencies. Uh, we're not a Smithsonian, and at the same time, we have those kind of numbers. And we we'd probably have more. Our just building can't handle it right now. Uh, we just don't have the capability of having that many more people. The new museum will fix some of that. Um, and so we expect those numbers are even a little higher moving into the new museum. Excellent. And what sort of what's currently featured at the museum and what will be featured in the future as well? Well, that's two different questions. Um, so the museum right now, we, we are we have the largest uh, public display of espionage artifacts anywhere in the world. There's more here than anywhere else. Um, everything from. Uh, audio and, and visual surveillance devices to escape and evasion tools to weapons to disguise uh, all the things that you would need to know how to use and, and kind of be familiar with to be an operations officer that's the first part of our museum it's actually called school for spies and a little catchy name but really what you're looking at is all the things that an, an operations officer needs to know how to do and in there we have some great artifacts we have some one-of-a-kind things um, that focus on whether different weapons or different disguise. Our disguise case was put together by the former chief of disguise of CIA. Um, we have stuff from a woman in Virginia Hall who was a, uh, she actually worked for SOE at the beginning of World War II and then later for OSS, but she was an American. Uh, she worked with the French resistance. We have her radio and several of her medals and awards because we have communication with her family. Uh, in there, we actually have one of the Aston Martin DB5s from Goldfinger. Uh, which is the kind of quintessential Bond car, and it was one of the ones made for the movie. So they're, they're you know, they're real artifacts. Ninety-eight uh, percent of our artifacts are real, um, and the ones that are replicas were actually built for us by Russian intelligence, which is a whole other story. Uh, and then, and then the second part of our museum is actually called the Secret History of History, and this is really where we work chronological history of intelligence, going back to the very beginning. You know, we as others do jokingly call it the second oldest profession. Um, and then we work up historically, and that includes a lot of really great historic artifacts as well. And then right now, our third part of our museum is actually an exhibit on Bond villains. Uh, it, it was created for the uh, 50th anniversary of Dr. No back in 2012. And it was actually only supposed to be a temporary exhibit, but because we're moving, we've kept it around. 
Um, but it's a really cool exhibit. It doesn't focus on Bond because Bond is not all that interesting. I mean, to me, uh, the character of Bond, I don't mean the series. I mean, James Bond himself, you know, it, he's the same Martini swelling womanizing secret agent that saves the world every single movie. The actor changes, but the character stays the same. The villains, on the other hand, are incredibly interesting because they're not chosen at random. The villains are actually chosen according to what the world is afraid of at the time the movie comes out. So you can really teach history by looking at Bond villains. Like, who is the bad guy in Bond? That tells you what the world is afraid of. Uh, and that's actually kind of fun. Do you go into, um, like, Fleming sort of... Uh, Ian Fleming actually based some of his villains on, on um, characters he encountered in the war of them. Yeah, absolutely. Correctly. Like, Blofeld is based on Otto Skorzeny, who was Hitler's bodyguard. He had mm. the scar and everything else. And we actually do show how some of the, the kind of the genesis of some of these characters, the genesis of Fleming's ideas being part of British naval intelligence during the war. Uh, you know, we talk about how mincemeat, Operation Mincemeat, was something that Fleming had a hand in. And it kind of shows his creativity. Um, but, I mean, look at Dr. No, right? It's a great example. Dr. No is about a megalomaniacal dictator living on a Caribbean island trying to start a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Dr. No comes out the same week in 1962 is a Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a real story about a megalomaniacal dictator living on a Caribbean island trying to start a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. I mean, it's as real to form as it gets, to the point where Dr. No's release in the United States had to be pushed back several weeks because it was too true too true to life. Um, and to us, that's interesting. I, I'm a historian. I, I don't like the pop culture as much as everybody. I, mean, I love spy movies. But I don't think we need to give a lot of space to it here. But we do this because it can actually teach uh, and can inform. It's not just, hey, look, it's Jaws's teeth, you know, or it's another cool knickknack from uh, it's the, the rope that was torturing Daniel Craig in Casino Royale or the. These are things that are neat to see. But as long as we have a kind of purpose behind it, as long as we're actually telling a, a story that's educational, uh, I'm OK with it. And we do that. I think we do that very well now. To give you a quick kind of lowdown on the new museum, the current museum is about 98% human intelligence. So it's really about, we really put the spy in spy museum. That's not going to be the new museum. The new museum is going to be a lot more representative of, of reality. Uh, so we'll have a human gallery. We were certainly not ignoring human intelligence. We'll have a really great human gallery. We're also going to have a gallery focusing on the other ends, SIGINT, Emmet, Masson, open source, a lot of things like that. We're going to be looking at covert action. A big, it's going to be a big, fun gallery on covert action. We're looking at what we're calling kind of working title internal threats, looking at things like counterintelligence, counterterrorism, how do you fight dissent, things like that. And then finally, we're going to have an American intelligence gallery where it's not going to be like milestone moments in American intelligence. It's really going to be paying attention to a lot of the questions that we've had since the very beginning of the country. You know, the kind of the tension between transparency and secrecy the tension between security and privacy. Do the ends justify the means when it comes to covert action? How much oversight should the government have? How much oversight should the what should the people know? These are questions that have been asked since the very beginning of our country. And so we're really gonna investigate those questions through case studies. Um, we've acquired 5,000 or so new artifacts for the new museum. Wow. So uh, my last two years have been busy. Uh, but a lot of a lot of fun at the same time too, right? It's, it's 
bouncing around the country and the world getting artifacts for the new museum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it could be worse. How do you go about selecting these artifacts? They just donated to you, or do you have to literally go out searching for them? They're a little bit of everything. Um, we sometimes have people who cold call us and say, hey, my dad was so-and-so. I've got a garage full of stuff. Do you want it? Uh, sometimes we, uh, we go to agencies, we go to people. Um, we have the reputation built on the last 15 years with this museum that we can call people in my title. They may not know my name, but my title carries a lot of weight. Uh, and you know, so we call ex spooks and people and say who we are and say, what do you got in your attic? Um, and sometimes that really works. Um, you'd be amazed about how, what people bring home with them. Uh, but also when we talk about corporations and stuff, you know, a lot of, a lot of intelligence artifacts, gadgets, things are now outsourced to private industry. And so calling up corporations, uh, and saying, look, you know, we have, you know, 800,000 people going through our museum every year. How would you like to give us this piece of technology that on the label will say courtesy of your company? And maybe we'll put a video of what the technology is doing and kind of say courtesy of your company on there. And yeah, it's kind of, it's a quid pro quo. Of course, they're doing it because they want exposure, but it's a chance to get a really cool artifact. We just acquired, and it's actually on display in our current museum, the Black Hornet drone, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, it's a little helicopter drone being used by, by British and American special operations forces right now in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we went to the company that makes it. And we said, hey, guys, you know, we'd love to have it's, – it's not classified. I mean, it's, it's, it's very advanced. You know, it costs several hundred thousand dollars a drone. But we're like, hey, you know, we'd love to have one of your drones in our museum. What do you say? And they said, absolutely. Um, you know, so we have this kind of maxim that all they can say is no. That's the worst-case scenario. But you never know unless you ask. So a lot of it is kind of cold-calling people yeah. and say, hey, we love what you got. What can you do for us? Um, and so we've been able to acquire in the last two years about 5,000 new artifacts. That's brilliant. And has that, has that got any easier or harder, with, like, especially with places like Russia and things like that? Well, yeah, it's impossible now, Russia. I yeah. mean, we, uh, you try to have a relationship with them, but they just mm. they don't want to do it. Um, the SBR actually was the agency that was a little more open about it, certainly back before things got tenser. Um, but the SVR has been marginalized pretty considerably by the FSB uh, in Russia. And so they're kind of calling the shots. At this point, it's very difficult to do. Um, luckily, we got a lot out of there before it closed up. So we do have a lot of great Russian and Soviet artifacts. Uh, it's not going to be very easy to get anything now. Um, but we're, we're developing relationships with other countries. Right now, actually, in our lobby, we have a small temporary exhibit on the BND, German Intelligence, uh, and we work directly with the BND and with the g German government uh, to get the artifacts for that and to bring them over, work with the German embassy. Uh, so it's a really good collaboration there. And we have we have partnerships with other uh, local embassies as well, the British as well, too. Uh, the British defense attache uh, is somebody that's often at the museums. We like to have a, you know, a lot of uh, conversations with him. He's a, a Major General Cripwell is his name. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and he's uh, he's the British defense attaché to the United States, so uh, just up the street at the British Embassy here. Excellent. And you guys hold functions there as well. I think I saw on your Twitter you had a um, evening with a spy or something like that. Yeah, no, we do a lot of adult programming. We do a lot of kid programming too, but the adult programming is really interesting where 
we bring in, uh, we kind of do one once a week or so in like the busy seasons, like the spring and the fall. We'll bring in a ex-spook or we'll bring in an author or a journalist or um, we've had times where we've had uh, the spy and the person who caught the spy. Um, and uh, it, it varies, right? If a new big book, a new scandal, something comes out, we try to get people to come in and do programming for that. Um, if uh, The Dinner of the Spy is actually really cool. It's a former intelligence officer, and you're there with like four or five other people. The most we ever do is like 10. And it's like a three-hour dinner where you just get to ask them anything and kind of have a conversation and chat. And we've done that with a lot of different people. Um, and they're, they're really, you know, high level people that have worked in intelligence at the high levels. And this is kind of a chance to kind of, you know, just have dinner and have a conversation with very little, you know, it's off the record. So you can ask anything you want and they're very open and they answer you. Uh, those are very cool events. Um, but our programming here is, is, is something that gives us a lot of credibility because we don't mess around. We try to get the top people, ex directors. Um, we had a program, we have a program coming up in the spring, with Jack Barsky, who was um, a, a sleeper agent uh, working for uh, the Stasi uh, and basically came to the United States and became an American. Uh, not, not a real American. He was a sleeper uh, for, for decades. Um, and uh, by the time he had been, uh, he'd been outed by a defector, the FBI was like, well, you know, he really didn't do anything while he was here because he stayed undercover. He was deep undercover. You know, we know he's, he's, he's just let him stay. And now he's here and he, and we'll have him in. And we, we have coming up, which is really cool, a program with a guy named John Nixon, who was the uh, leadership analyst at CIA focused on Saddam Hussein. And he spent a lot of time studying Saddam Hussein. So when we caught Saddam Hussein, he was sent over to make sure it was Saddam Hussein, right? It was a lot of body doubles and tricks. So not only was he saying who this guy is, but he spent weeks with him just chatting. So he did the first real interviews with Hussein, and it's just the two of them in a room talking about stuff, uh, which is incredible, right? This is like one of the most hated, heinous person. I mean, I'm not going to compare him to Hitler because nobody is Hitler, but imagine Hitler hadn't killed himself in the kind of sit-down conversation you would have with him after the war. So this is kind of a mini version of that, right? You're sitting down with talking about talking about stuff, with Saddam Hussein. And so he, he wrote a book about it and he's going to come talk about that. So this is the kind of program that we do at the museum. We, we think that it really enhances our ability uh, to go beyond just the kind of artifacts and the stuff in the museum. Uh, it really only focuses on a local audience. We do get some of the tourists who come in. Uh, it, we usually supplement that. I work very closely with our director of programming. Uh, supplement that with the podcast, right? I mean, that's that's our way to get the information out to the global audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, the, the podcast is brilliant. I love Spycasts. Every Tuesday is sort of the highlight of my week. Oh, I appreciate it. But yeah, tell us about sort of Spycast and sort of, um, yeah, how that came about. Well, Spycast has actually been around for years and years and years, but it was kind of done, it was kind of done as a nice way to kind of do something every now and then. You know, if somebody came into the museum that was interesting, we'd try to set something up. Um, my predecessor was very good at Mark Stout. You can listen to some of the ones before me. Very good at doing it, but toward the end of his time here, he was actually transitioning, and he was kind of part-time at the museum. So 
right before I took over, it really kind of slowed down to maybe once every other month you would get a podcast. So you never knew when a new one was going to drop, and there were few and far between. It really hadn't built up a big listenership. I just said, you know what? I enjoy doing this. I get a chance to talk to really interesting people. Um, and that's really how I pick guests. I go, who do I want to talk to? Uh, and I like doing it. And I actually started getting to the point where I had so many, we were still doing it once a month. Like that was what my mandate was when I took over the job. Like you got to do one of these once a month, but I had done so many of them that we had like 10 sitting recorded that we were waiting to put out. And I'm like, why are we waiting so long? So we started doing once a week. Uh, and then we said, we need to make sure we do it every, the same time every week. So people know for it. So now we do it Tuesday mornings. Uh, I think it's like 7 a.m. Eastern, so plus 5, noon, your time. Yeah, yeah it's about lunchtime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about lunchtime every Tuesday. Uh, and what it's done is you now, like you said, you have people who like it who know when a new one's going to drop and that they're interested in it. And what it's, it's somewhat cyclical. What we were able to do, because we became more popular, we were able to attract better guests. And by attracting better guests, we became more popular. And by coming more, so it went back and forth. And we were able to build upon that to where we were luckily able to, even when we had very few listeners, we were able to attract some nice people who agreed to do it, even though we had very few listeners. And them agreeing to do it allowed us to build up. Uh, and we got the attention of iTunes and they promoted us. And then we, we skyrocketed from there. Um, so like the, in 2013, the year before I was here, the year we really didn't have a full-time historian, the entire year, I think we had maybe 120,000 total listeners for the entire year. Um, this year, we're going to have 3.5 million. So, and that's in three years. And, and again, I'm not, this is not me patting myself on the back. I had very little to do with this. This had a lot more to do with word of mouth and iTunes helping us out when we needed it. And, and the good guests, right? Mm. I, yeah, the great guests. I, they're made, I, they're, I, I'm just flabbergasted by the people who agree. I mean, it's, and it gets to the point now where like, like David Petraeus is a good example. He was a favorite guest of mine because he's David Petraeus. Mm. Mm. And I emailed him cold. And within, I, I basically emailed him, hit send, turn around to pick up a book, look back, and he had returned my email saying he's sure he'd do it. And I was like, well, yeah, that's great. Um, and, and I think that's some of the reputation that uh, the podcast itself is building up because the guests are great. And they say they, they get a chance to really say what's on their mind. I think that's one of the cool things um, about spycasts. I'm not a journalist. And so I'm not going to ask them like the very like interrogative journalist questions. I tell people when they walk in the door, we're going to have a conversation. And we're going to pretend there's no audience there. We're just going to chat and you know, at the end of the day, the audience gets to eavesdrop in on our conversation. And that tends to work. People really loosen up. They, they come in somewhat stiff because they don't know what to expect. And then by 20 minutes in, they're kind of relaxing and leading back and laughing. Um, I had one very powerful person who at the end of the podcast had his chin on his hands and just kind of smiling and leaning forward, looking like a, you know, like a, a six-year-old boy. Yeah. sitting watching the TV with a, the chin on their knuckles uh, and just laughing and enjoying the time. And, and to me, that is what the kind of environment and atmosphere I'm trying to create here where somebody can have a conversation with somebody knowledgeable. And I get, here's why I will cut myself on the back. I prepare my, my brain out for these. I mean, I, 
I read whatever books, I read articles for the David Petraeus podcast. I read his dissertations. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't want to be caught unawares. I want to at least um, let the guests know that I've put the work in uh, because you, you'd be amazed about how quickly that they will give you more and how quickly they'll, they'll, they'll turn on uh, kind of that, that spigot that says, okay, I'm comfortable talking to this person if you've demonstrated the fact that you've really taken this seriously. And when I showed Petraeus that I had read his dissertation, you could see he's like, all right, we're going to have like a hardcore wonky conversation, which is why I wanted him in the first place, right? I didn't want to have a touchy-feely, how-do-you-feel conversation with David Petraeus. This is a guy who has a PhD from Princeton and ran the war. I wanted to have a, all right, let's talk turkey. Like, let's get really wonky uh, with David Petraeus. Other people, I actually wanted to have more of an interesting, like Thomas Drake is another great one that I thought, this is somebody who was one of the original NSA whistleblowers. Um, and he got kind of caught up in uh, some of the early NSA programs after 9-11, where he didn't actually leak anything classified. He actually leaked information about bad budget management on some of these programs that weren't as good as others. And what that meant was that he got slammed with like 15 counts of violation of the Espionage Act, and all this crazy, and they're going to put him in prison for the rest of his life. But it was all nonsense. And eventually he pled down to a misdemeanor count of unauthorized use of a government computer, um, which is like a nothing thing. It gave him no prison, but it took away his security clearance. So he couldn't work for the NSA anymore. And now he's somewhat jaded, and understandably so. Um, and just getting him to talk about that, this is very personal. You know, this is kind of, you know, a, kind of his life. Um, that's where I kind of wanted to make sure, look, I know all the stuff about you. I'm kind of on your side on this, although not 100%. Actually, I think when I pushed back a little bit is when you became more willing to have a conversation. Uh, so it's really kind of feeling out the guests, being as prepared as I possibly can, in many cases, knowing the answer to any question I ask, um, because I don't like being surprised. Sometimes I am, and you can actually... You can hear it, right? You can even hear it on the podcast where I'm like, oh, really? Um, that's a, for me, that's kind of a sinking feeling like, damn, that's something I missed, something I yeah. missed in the preparation. Yeah. So. <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's next for Spycast? Are there any new exciting guests um, that are coming up for later this year and early next year? Well, I, so by the time this posts, we just did one that posted yesterday on Pearl Harbor, which is a big deal here in the United States, the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And um, this really great journalist wrote a cool book that took everything we know about Pearl Harbor and really he spent a lot of time putting this together. And it's really, to me, it's a definitive kind of, here's what happened, here's why we were surprised, all this. Uh, and that's what we talked about for uh, the December 6th one. December 13th, we have a really cool one that by the time you're listening to this, it'll already happen, but you should listen to it for sure. Dr. Stacy Dixon, who is the deputy director of IARPA, and IARPA is the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity. Um, your, your listeners may have heard of DARPA before, which is, you know, they, they invented the Internet and other things like that. Well, IARPA is the intelligence version of that. And this is an organization that's doing things like quantum computing and working on a psychology of interrogation and, like, really cool advanced research. They really – they believe in high risk, high reward, so they can fail all they want. Because if they succeed every once in a while, they succeed in making something really revolutionary. 
so you know they're, they're based on the DARPA idea, right? So DARPA failed a thousand times when they succeeded, they built the internet, and they failed hundreds of times when they succeeded, they built Kevlar, you know, so or GPS. So the IARPA is doing the same basic idea. And so this is the deputy director of IARPA. So she's kind of in the weeds. She's kind of understanding how this went. And so we had a really cool conversation about really the next 15, 20 years of what you're going to see in intelligence. Uh, that was a lot of fun for me as kind of a science nerd. Um, we have, if you love museum type stuff and artifacts, we have one of our board members who until recently was the largest single private owner of intelligence artifacts in the world. Um, and he's been collecting artifacts for like the last 50 years. So we're sitting and chatting about how do you do that? Like what was this, you know, he went in and out of Russia, like smuggling stuff in his pants and stuff like that. So it's not really a history thing, but it's kind of a real fun, like inside baseball. Uh, how did you get these artifacts? Like how did you go about convincing certain people to bring stuff out for you? Um, you know, it's almost like how you know spying, right? How you convince somebody to smuggle a person or smuggle an artifact yeah. out of Russia for you, and getting away with it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting away with it. I talked about uh, John Nixon, the guy who, who interviewed Saddam Hussein. Uh, mm. That will be a program that will also has a podcast, so you'll be able to listen to that conversation that I have with John Nixon. Um, yeah, no, I mean we just have really cool things that are on my wish list. Um, I. I uh, I have some people I'd love to talk to. I won't kind of give away who they are, but you can pretty much guess. Yes. I've been, I've, been try, I've been trying to get old Ed Snowden for a while. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you about Ed. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, uh, he, he, he knows who we are. He knows who I am. He knows what SpyCast is, uh, but he's hesitant. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that our board is somewhat conservative. Um, and I can get, I get it. Look, he, he would, if he gave an interview to me, he'd have absolutely no editorial control over what I finally posted. And I, I mean, I don't edit anything anyway. Like I edit it out if you like burp or fart or like I edit it out if you make a mistake or, or something like that, but I don't edit, I don't edit for content. Um, and that's a promise that I make to people. I go, look, what you say is what's going in it. So I'm not going to make any sound or anything, but it's going to take some convincing and hopefully I can look, I'm going to keep pushing for it. I love to sit down with him. Um, I'm kind of one of those torn guys who half think he's a hero and half think he's a traitor. Uh, and so I, I think I could give him a very objective conversation with him. But he hasn't agreed. Um, we'll see. Mm. I, hope you, I hope you get it because I really would like to hear you interview him because I, I feel quite torn about Edward Snowden as well. It'd be really, I think you could probably... Um, well, I don't know if you necessarily get to the bottom of it, but I think you'd be very well equipped to kind of, um, yeah, find out the truth. I think. Well, it would be, it'd be, you know, if if you would learn, if you're willing to trust me, mm. uh, and you know, and I think that I can ask some of the questions that people like, you know, Brian Williams can't. They just don't have the background to do so. Um, and I'm not coming. I look. I'm not ex CIA. I'm not ex NSA. I, I I dabbled here and there. I'm informal practitioner, but for the most part, I don't have an agenda. Um, and I think that. That that's Ed. If you're listening to this podcast, uh, come on mine. Um, <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting if he is actually listening to this one. <laughs> well, what's, what's what's interesting now is looking at the the Trump transition team, the people who yeah. are being put together for that. Um, the NASA Security Advisor designate Michael Flynn, who I did a podcast with earlier this year. Um, so I may I may repost those uh, mm. just right before the inauguration, just to be like, hey, if you want to know who these guys are. You know, it's like Petraeus, the Secretary of State. There's a, I got both of them. Um, so, 
I mean, I, I would have loved, I've been trying to get Mattis for a while too. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like I'm going to now. Uh, General Mattis, uh, who might be the Secretary of Defense. So. It'd be, hard, it'd be harder to get as soon as he gets a cabinet position. Well, that's the problem, right? Yeah, I kind of mm. miss my chance for some of these. But I'm constantly hustling. I'm, I'm, I've got a list of who I want. I've got I'm making phone calls. I'm trying to schedule people. I have a lot of people who have agreed and we just haven't scheduled it yet. Mm. So a lot of it is, you know, uh, calling people and being like, look, I can come in tomorrow. Be like, let's do it. And do they come to you most of the time? Or do you uh, do it like we are through Skype and things? I mean, if they can't come to us, we obviously do it through Skype. If they're local and like members of Congress, like uh, we did a podcast with a guy named Will Hurd, who is a member of Congress from Texas. And he's the only member of Congress that's former CIA. He's a member. He can't really, he doesn't have the time to come over here. So I went to him. We recorded it in his office. Um, but we do have a studio here. Uh, at the museum that has relatively advanced stuff. I mean, we're still, it's not, you know, it's not ABC or BBC. Um, but we, uh, we have the tools to kind of make it sound pretty decent. So we try to get people to come to us uh, because just the sound quality tends to be better. And really, our, it's a little tiny studio that really kind of is comfy. It's almost like you, know, you kind of feel comfortable when you're in it. And that's kind of, again, the atmosphere that I like to create is kind of, you know, sit back, relax, just the two of us in this small room. We're just chatting. Uh, so we like to do it here if we can. And for, for many people, they're in D.C. already. Um, or we have them when they're traveling to D.C., right? So a lot of the, the you know, the, inter- the invitations for the podcast, I'm like, hey, next time you're in D.C., can you swing by? And a lot of times they'll say yes. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm without a studio at the moment, so there's always a challenge. I'm, I'm typically go on location um, or try and time it when people are in London um, because it's, yeah, London, like Washington's a great focal point to kind of get people in and get great guests. I'd say everybody always ends up in D.C. at some point, and I think London's very similar to that. Is is you know, no matter who they're, they are, if they're involved in some way in intelligence, they're going to find their way through D.C., and that makes my life pretty easy. Yeah. And both cities are good spy cities as well. Yeah, Lots of absolutely. things going on. Um, I think I saw, was it Peter Ernest and once on one of Anthony Bourdain's shows, kind of giving a mini tour of uh, some sites of DC. I think there was a particular bar where um, Aldrich Ames yeah. and various other people were sort of hanging out and doing things. Yeah, there, there are a lot of really interesting, like actually one of great, the museum itself, right? So the Spy Museum currently was the headquarters of the regional communist party of the United States in the 1930s. So where we have our museum was the headquarters of the Communist Party here in Washington in the 1930s, which is kind of a nice historic thing. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of a lot of cool sites. Um, certainly up by the embassies, a lot of a lot of interesting things happened up by the embassies, uh, and that's kind of all in Northwest DC. So you can even take a walking tour and see 10, 15, 20 spy-related sites just kind of walking in Northwest DC. And do you run those tours or are they independent ones? No, I mean, a lot of times we, we may do a program here or there, but there are some independent ones. We can, you can legitimately, you don't need to do like a, a, a tour. You could buy, you know, buy a book for 10 bucks uh, and just walk it yourself. They're all, they're all within walking distance. I mean, DC is one of the most walkable cities in the world. So it's not that difficult to do. I mean, don't come in February and walk it. It's kind of cold. Yes. And don't come in August. <laughs> 
Don't come in August because you'll drop dead. But, you know, <laughs> May is beautiful. May Come in May. You can walk all day, see all the spy sites. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'll definitely have to do it. It's my birthday month, so I'll definitely have to come down one day. <laughs> um, I've, I've actually been to your... You, one uh, in 2012, the Spy Museum were in New York. They had a sort of mobile exhibition. Yep. I don't know if you guys still do that. Um, we, we don't write. We, we do. It's not. Uh, we have a small exhibit, not the one that you saw. Uh, maybe it was. It's called. Um, it used to be called Enemies Within. Now it's called Spies Something and Saboteurs. Uh, it's really. It's focused on um, the way the United States has responded to domestic terrorism. Um. And that's traveling. It's a traveling exhibit. I don't know where it is right now. It goes like the presidential libraries and it bounces around the country. It's a really cool exhibit. I mean, it goes back to the very beginning of the country and really focuses on how we've reacted, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, uh, to threats here in the United States, whether it's domestic terrorism from like the Klan, you know, or for white supremacists or foreign infiltration, you know, Muslim terrorism or communists or anything else. So, uh, that's what that exhibit's doing. It's really interesting. If, if, if it's not going to make its way out to the other side of the pond, just because uh, we're so concentrating on developing the new museum, uh, I don't think it'll work its way over there. But if you do find yourself in the United States and you're in one of the cities and you kind of see it, uh, it's definitely worth doing because we 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 were pretty proud of it. Um, we think it's a pretty good exhibit. Well, the one I went to was fantastic. I mean, they, um, the things I remember, because it's a while back now, but you actually had the actual Argo script that was used by the CIA for that. Um, you had Anna Chapman's laptop, um, the axe that killed Trotsky, um, and I think the crest from one of the embassies that had been bugged by the Russians. Yeah, I'm going to no comment on all of that because okay. those are... <laughs> Those are things that you may or may not see in our new museum. Oh. Um, <laughs> you will. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, so when I, when I talk about one-of-a-kind historic artifacts, uh, the current museum has a couple of them. The new museum will have many, many, many. Uh, and what's interesting is I think the number one – well, we're hoping the number one reaction of people is like, oh, my God, this is amazing. That would be wonderful. But we think the number two reaction for a lot of people is, where the hell did they get this stuff? Um, because it really is like one of a kind, like this is that. Um, and that's a lot of the fun of uh, kind of talking internally to people uh, is saying, hey, we've got these artifacts. And they're like, how? That's not the real one, right? Like, yeah, no, that's the real one. You know, that's a the real piece of this or the real one of these. And and we're pretty excited. I think people's jaws are going to drop when they're they're. I'm a guy, I'm a object person in museums, so like when I go to a museum, I'm like, wow, that's the real whatever. Uh, that's why I love like the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is one of my favorite museums. You walk in, and you're like, oh, there's a capsule that looks a lot like Apollo 11, and then you walk up to it like, oh, that's Apollo 11. Anyways, it, it, it's not one of these that looks like it. It is it is that one, and that's what you're gonna get uh, with our new museum. It's a lot of things where you're like, oh, that looks like blank. Uh, and you walk up to the label and go, oh, my God, how did they get that? Um, so, yes, a lot of the stuff you saw uh, in that exhibit, you, you'll be able to see later on. They're pretty extraordinary things. Um, but we've also been able to acquire a bunch of other cool stuff, too. Excellent. Is all this now at the moment sitting in a kind of Raiders of Lost Ark style warehouse? Yeah, that's really the really <laughs> cool thing about it is, yeah, we have off-site storage that uh, – they actually call them vaults too, like where all the, the boxes of stuff are. And you walk in and it's just like 
it's just like the Raiders. Uh, or it's just Florida ceiling boxes of crates of, in this case, espionage artifacts from one end to the other. Uh, it's pretty neat. I, I enjoy going there very much because it's the smell of old stuff uh, as a historian really gets to me. Yeah, no, nothing beats it. Nothing beats it. Well, um, we'll we'll wrap up in a moment. Just one last thing. Um, so, what do you think twenty seventeen has in store for the world of intelligence? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, so the big thing didn't happen yet. Well, I guess we still have part of a month left. This is the first year that a lot of people argued that someone was going to be killed through a hacking attack. Um, you know, you've had physical damage with things like Stuxnet before. Um, you've had people being like swatted and stuff. That's not what I mean. 2016 was supposed to be the first year, according to a lot of futurists or technology people that someone was literally killed because of something hacked. I think almost certainly 2017 will see that whether it's a, uh, self-driving car that drives off a bridge or it's a, uh, a refrigerator that's online and networked overheating and blowing up a house. Um, you know, something like that, or, I mean, the, the biggest fear is kind of medical devices that are now uh, linked in, you know, what if an insulin pump is hacked and they just kind of pump Anyway, I'm not trying to scare anybody. I think this will be the year that we see hacking become deadly uh, because there's, there's been probes already. Uh, we've seen get, they get very close. Um, this is the year. Now, you could argue that hacking an election already kind of makes it real problematic. Uh, that was what 2016 gave us. Uh, but I think you're going to see that in the world of cyber get pretty um, go to the next level and really be truly deadly. As far as broader things, I, I think one of the interesting things to look at will be the relationship between the United States and Cuba. Because it may be rolled back, it may not. If it is rolled back, I think that you will, uh, I think the Cubans will feel somewhat betrayed. Uh, and you may see a, a resurgence of Cuban intelligence against the United States. Uh, which they're very good at it. Uh, they're very, very good at it. So I'm not looking forward to that if it happens. Um, but if it is somewhat, uh, if the thaw continues, uh, I'm interested to see if the Cuban archives open up because we may find some really juicy stuff in there. Uh, so it wouldn't be just about the United States. It would be about them working with the Soviets and some of the information that we can't get now from Russia. We might be able to get from Cuba. I mean, historians have had to do that, right? So when, when Russia closed up, historians had tried to learn a lot about Russia and the Soviet Union by going to the Eastern European countries, right? So you go into the Czech archives or the Hungarian archives or the Belarusian archives, and that way you can learn stuff about the Soviets because of their interactions. Well, Cuba is juicy. I say I could, it could be a gold mine of information, and as a historian, that makes me drool. To kind of see what we can potentially get from some, especially now that Fidel died, you may have an opening of some of those secret police archives and the intelligence archives um, that could be really cool uh, for intelligence historians. I don't know if the 2017 is going to give it to us, um, but we, hopefully we'll be moving in that direction. Yeah, I did. It's funny actually. It's thanks to your show. I didn't realize that um, human intelligence was so effective. They only had one foreign target. How good would British intelligence be if they had one single target they were worried about, right? Brit the Cuban intelligence really only focused on the United States. So if you're only looking at one thing, you're going to be really, really good at it. You know, it's not a global intelligence agency like the, the British, the Americans, and others. 
you know, we're, we're paying attention to the whole world. The Cubans don't care about the rest of the world. They care about the United States. Um, and that makes it very easy. Uh, and it makes them very effective. Now, another thing that helps them is the fact that we just let anybody in from Cuba. Uh, there's absolutely no immigration issues. It's a, it, now it, there's a wet foot, dry foot policy, if you know what that is. Actually, I don't. What is that? What is... Essentially, if you get caught trying to uh, go across the Florida Straits and you're in the water, you get sent back to Cuba. If you make it to dry land, you get to stay. Uh, okay. So wet foot, dry foot is the policy. So literally, if you're 20 feet off the beach swimming in and the Coast Guard catches you, you go back to Cuba. If you're able to make it and touch sand, like, you know, lay out and dive and touch sand, you get to, you get to stay in the United States. That's the policy. That's how ridiculous the immigration policy from Cuba is. And that's a response. That's a response yeah. <laughs> to the Castro and the Cold War. And the idea is if they get here, we got to let we can't send them back. We got to let them stay. And the problem with that is you can just send intelligence officers all you want and they can claim that they're refugees and they get to stay. So there are a lot of different numbers thrown around, but you're looking at like one out of every 10 refugees is a Cuban intelligence officer. Uh, and, you know, so I grew up in Miami and just surrounded statistically by Cuban intelligence officers, um, which is kind of weird if you think about it, but it's also makes life very easy for them. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm really interested in seeing if the Cuban archives will open up, if we can start learning things as this relationship changes a little bit, as Castro dies, Raul is not far behind. He's not a young guy either, uh, even though he's in very good health. And then you'll have a whole new generation of leadership there. Uh, and with a new generation of leadership, you may actually get a kind of a different way. I mean, maybe it'll be kind of a Gorbachev effect, uh, where somebody who didn't live through the revolution comes to power and has a very different way of thinking about relations with the United States and how open the society is. Look, it could be a pipe dream. It could be complete nonsense and never going to happen. But that's something that I can't wait. I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. We can all we all have to live in hope with these kind of things, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, well, Vince, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Um, can you? Where can my sort of listeners find out more about the yourself and the Spy Museum and even Spycast? Yeah, it's really easy. It's just the website is spymuseum.org, uh, and that's our main website. Um, yeah. And then if you scroll to the bottom of the page. Uh, there's a link for SpyCast. You can also, if you do iTunes, you can go to iTunes. So SpyCast is on iTunes. Um, you can actually sign up to where they automatically download the podcast every Tuesday uh, to your phone or your computer, so you don't have to think about it. Um, yeah, that's 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 where we are. SpyMuseum.org. Org. Excellent. And if anybody's in Washington D.C., do go. Yes, please. Yeah, <laughs> it's a cool museum. I mean, it, it's it's worth the trip. If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast. 